0: Now we have to lead off uh, the immediate past American ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and he speaks to us uh, one day before the anniversary, not just of Valentine's Day, but the historic meeting between then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and then Saudi Arabian monarch uh, Abdulaziz bin Rahman also both had passed. Uh, May their souls rest in peace, mashallah. Uh, To this day, people think that that historic agreement was sort of Saudi Arabia's oil in exchange for America's protection. Uh, 99% of the people who talk about the relationship cite that. Um, It's a cheap shot. It dehumanizes, especially the Saudi Arabian component of it. It makes Saudi Arabia look like a thing, an, inan- an inanimate factor for force and phenomena, when it is nothing of the sort. Uh, it is the custodian of the two holy places. It's the epicenter of prayer and pilgrimage of faith and spiritual devotion for fully a quarter of humanity. We'll begin with Ambassador James
1: Smith. Good morning. Uh, On my left are two uh, uh, powerhouses in the intellectual understanding of the GCC and foreign relations. I'm a practitioner, so I'm going to focus on some observations uh, from the end of a little over four years. and, and really set the stage for your questions and since we're more intimate group here this morning we should have time for that. Uh, but there are some themes uh, uh, at work in the region and a couple of those impact the GCC and what is happening there today. The first of those themes is a move from control to influence where historically Governments in the region, and arguably U.S. foreign policy as well, has focused on control of events locally. And governments in the region would control the message, they control what people go, they control what the media uh, 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 produces for consumption. Uh, you control thought, you control movement, you control. Until this came along. And you can't control anymore. And we're finding that that whole populations uh, no longer see themselves as subjects. They see themselves as citizens with a a voice and and a right to free speech. Saudi Arabia now has the highest percentage of Twitter usage of any population in the world. This is huge and amazing debate going on Uh, that doesn't make its way into the uh, government-sanctioned media. It's healthy. And it causes populations to make demands. And the demand they're making generally is an expectation that their government is going to be responsive to their needs and that the government is going to be transparent in the process of being responsive. And you translate that into a focus on corruption and anti-corruption campaigns. Um, this move from, from control to influence is hugely important in the GCC and in the maturity of the GCC. Because uh, uh, taking up uh, Dr. Anthony's uh, uh, history of the GCC for the 20 years after the Iran-Iraq War, it was largely dormant. Uh, It was a place where the heads of state got together once a year and the foreign ministers got together in the off six months and in the absence of consensus, nothing was agreed upon, and since there was never consensus, not much got agreed on. And there was a tradition, and some senior Saudis have used this expression, so I'm not taking it out of, uh, uh, making it up myself. It was an organization of one big brother and five little brothers. uh, And of course, Saudi Arabia being the big brother. In an era of control, that worked. In an era of influence, it doesn't work anymore because there is an expectation of constituent uh, responsiveness by the leaders of each individual nation and an expectation that they have their own foreign policy that's reflective of the concerns of that population. This became very evident to me uh, during Ramadan two years ago when King Abdullah called for the meeting of the uh, leaders of all Muslim-majority countries in Mecca. And in talking to the people after that meeting, it it was much more of a debate because the leaders of these countries had to go home and explain to their constituents their position and why it was important for them to be there. So in the era of influence and, and the access to global media has a huge impact on the changing dynamic in the region and oh by the way as populations expect their governments to be responsive on things like food and housing and, and jobs they're also expecting them to be responsive on foreign policy so this is why Papa uh, al killed 30,000 people a generation ago, his son does the same thing it doesn't work anymore because when you're seeing pictures of your fellow Muslims and Arabs being killed it just doesn't work So it has created within the GCC an activism that has never been a part of the GCC before. The other trend in the region, I would argue, is the movement of influence from north to south. Because historically the northern capitals of Cairo, Baghdad, and Damascus have been the intellectual centers, the financial, uh, economic centers, uh, the academic centers of the Arab and Islamic world. Uh, they will remain the historic centers Uh, but Baghdad was the Beata al-Hikma back in the 13th century Uh, already you see in Riyadh Dubai, Abu Dhabi and Doha the financial and economic center of gravity has already moved south and I would argue with the investment in education the intellectual center will also move in that direction And of course, Saudi Arabia for most of the past decade has invested about 26% of their national budget in education. And not only are they sending uh, several hundred thousand students abroad, about 80,000 here in the United States, they've gone from eight to 34 universities in the last decade. So they're building their own infrastructure uh, uh, education system. Now, uh, Qatar and the Emirates have approached it in a different way, but they also are making a huge investment in education, so with that over time, the intellectual center of the Arab and Islamic world is going to flow south, and the question is how will they deal with that? Because if you're going to be a leader in the intellectual world, it's going to argue that you will accept diversity of thought, and, and that has not always been the case in the, in the region. The GCC has shown some maturity in the last three to four years, and part of that is leadership, uh, now, the GCC Secretariat does not set policy for the GCC. That is done by the heads of state and the foreign ministers of the six countries. But Abdul Latif al-Zahani has proven to be uh, an incredible leader as the GCC Secretary. He took uh, a, a, a uh, an important intellectual and courageous role in the Yemen transition. Uh, he was aided by... Uh, other ambassadors including our own, Jerry Farstein, who uh, uh, helped and supported the transition process in a way that many in the region thought that would be the template for other transitions in the region. It hasn't proven out that way, but that was the intent at the time. But you've got a changing dynamic uh, because, as I said before, each country in the GCC has developed its own foreign policy. And sometimes, publicly, uh, uh, it appears that uh, Qatar and Saudi Arabia are at odds with each other. Uh, the emirates in Saudi Arabia seem closer than they've ever been. Uh, Bahrain and, and Kuwait seem uh, troubled by domestic challenges of different, uh, uh, different kinds that limit their ability. Uh, and Oman along with its own independent but very sophisticated foreign policy uh, that uh, suggests that you're going to see diversity of thought in the GCC. I would argue that this diversity of thought is uh, the beginnings of true multilateral opportunities in the region Uh, and I think it, it, it could be very positive. Certainly, the Strategic Cooperation Forum, uh, the beginnings of a GCC dialogue with the United States, very, very important. And it has elevated a political discussion that we did not have before. Uh, I remember in the first session, that Secretary Clinton came to Riyadh. We had the six foreign ministers around the table. We gave a very short briefing on uh, uh, missile defense. And it was very clear that the foreign ministers had not been introduced to the topic, the technical part of the topic. It is an issue that had been at the CHOD level, the Chiefs of Defense, which SITCOM had been working Which, my next observation is, the weakness in U.S. foreign policy in dealing with the region, because it is the only region in the world where the United States does not have an access into a multilateral organization in the region. Everything we do in the region is bilateral. And in fact, General Zinni coined the term bilateral multilateralism uh, for uh, the, uh, the region where you focus country, U.S. to individual country trying to keep everything going in one direction so that at some point the GCC could get together on air and missile defense Uh, You do it by bilateral actions, not multilateral. Uh, My recommendation is we look at this hard. I I think that uh, we should probably have an ambassador to the GCC and to the Arab League uh, to offer to have a seat at the table where there's daily exchange at a multilateral level, not just everything bilateral in the region. And one final point, I mentioned the pivot, uh, which has gotten a lot of attention. It's probably an unfortunate framing of national security strategy because uh, it leaves open the question, if you're going somewhere else, uh, where are you leaving? Uh, I remind people that uh, played basketball that a pivot means that you keep one foot in place, uh, and we're going to have to keep a foot in place. Now, the the positive part of the pivot is that it may be a pivot away from the era of strategic ADD. Uh, After World War II, there were smart people that got together, they set up the National War College, they thought through uh, uh, the Soviet Union what the character of this energy was and framed the uh, strategy of containment that served us for the next 40 years. We didn't do that in 1989. Uh, There was no grand strategy to look at how the world is changing and what are the things that are going to impact us. And and I think we will look back at the last 20 something years and call it the era strategic ADD because we went from problem to problem to problem. Now if you see the world as a series of problems, there's two assumptions. One is, it's a problem you can fix, and two, it's a problem you should fix. The second unintended consequence is, if you're not a problem, the government doesn't have any bandwidth for you. Uh, So, long-established, important relationships have acrified over the last 20 years. Uh, Arguably, our relationship with Japan, with Korea, with ASEAN. And to some degree, with Saudi Arabia, has atrophied because we had been so focused on problem areas, we didn't have the opportunity to build. So, arguably, Asia is the part of the world that's going to dominate the next century. A pivot intellectually to that probably (coughs) makes sense. Does it mean we're going to leave? I don't think so. So, with that, I look forward to your questions.
0: Uh, Thank you, Ambassador Smith. Our next uh, speaker is Colonel David DeRoche, uh, who is an alumnus of one of our programs, the Joseph J. Malone Program in Arab and Islamic Studies, where we enabled him to participate in a study visit to Syria. Uh, We at the National Council have sent... Uh, 400 Americans to live and study in Syria. Um, I've visited there 16 times and we've had roughly half and half, half high school students uh, studying uh, Arabic and culture in Syria primarily in Aleppo and half uh, university uh, fellows and in addition to the two uh, congressional chiefs of staff and the Defense and Foreign Policy Advisors, the Legislative and communications Affairs Directors of the United States Congress. We sent those to Syria also. Uh, Dave DeRoche is an extraordinary individual in terms of his background in Special Forces, Training and Operations as well as his uh, having served in Afghanistan early on, uh, after the initial United States uh, deployment to Afghanistan. Colonel DeRoche. Thank you uh, for your kind words.
2: Uh, I should say that my remarks do not reflect uh, uh, the views of the National Defense University in the Near East South Asia Center where I'm currently employed, or any branch of the United States government. uh, so Ambassador Smith and Dr. Anthony pointed out that tomorrow is the anniversary of the meeting between Franklin Roosevelt and Abdul Aziz aboard the USS Quincy. But there's another anniversary that occurred this week, which I think is maybe even more fitting, and that is the 50th anniversary of the um, appearance of the Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show. It's, it's often forgotten that the Beatles appeared, and then following them uh, was a dog act. And speaking after uh, Dr. Anthony and then Ambassador Smith... Um, I feel like I've got three poodles and a beagle here. Uh, But I want to thank uh, uh, Ambassador Smith. Paid me uh, two compliments. First, he first he lumped me in with Professor Sullivan as an intellectual powerhouse, which I think is only true if your experience of electrical power is in Karachi during the summer. Uh, But secondly, his views are rather consonant with mine, and so uh, I hope that uh, if there is any repetition. Uh, you'll you'll agree that we um, converged on the same point from different approaches. I have two points here, a technological one and a historical one, and I have one big insight. The insight is what we have thought of in the past as major US security providers to the Gulf Cooperation Council are declining in utility and indeed may even be counterproductive. Let me talk about technology first. The bottom line here is that big is a liability and multiple, small and mobile is what is more effective in the world of security as it's developing. Military weaponry is becoming cheaper and more capable almost every day, except with the Joint Strike Fighter, which. Uh, the trend is decreasing, this trend is decreasing the utility, military utility, of large assets such as fixed air bases and aircraft carriers in particular. We know from the George Marshall Institute that the Iranian Fatah 110 missile currently has a circular error of probability of about 100 meters and a payload of 500 kilograms. This means that if Iran fires a salvo of eight missiles at an American aircraft carrier, four of those missiles, (laughs) absent any effective interdiction, will land within 100 meters of the aim point. That's not good. This is a significant development. Even absent any development in Iranian missile terminal guidance, which I suspect is underway, chances are pretty good that Iran can sink a multi-billion-dollar aircraft carrier for an investment of several million dollars in missiles. The aircraft carrier, which Prince Turki Al Faisal cited in his National Council address uh, this this fall as a key indicator of U.S. military commitment to the Gulf, is not likely to remain effective for long. The final ch- history of the carrier has not yet been written, but we are in the first pages of the last chapter. Indeed, the presence of personnel and capital-intensive American military assets, such as carriers, may prove to be counterproductive within a few years, just as having large bases in the Gulf full of U.S. service members doing the things that – culturally insensitive U.S. service members doing the things that 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds do has been cited as a factor in the birth of al-Qaeda. Having culturally insensitive soldiers in socially conservative Muslim countries is guaranteed to create problems. Recall the complication in U.S.-Saudi relations over the insistence of of a woman Air Force colonel that she not wear a head covering one among Saudis. It's friction that we don't need. It's friction that we don't need. Now, here's a historical point. When the United States is faced with a military disaster, it takes one of two actions. If a core U.S. interest is at stake, we double down and fight to the bitter end as after the attacks at Pearl Harbor and the fall of the Philippines. If we think a core interest is not at stake and we can't win easily, then we cut our losses and move on, as with the, after the, the deployments of Beirut after the bombing of the Marine Corps barracks, and earlier when the government in Saigon fell and we had no choice but to withdraw. If not now, then in the not-too-distant future when the United States has ample domestic hydrocarbon fuels, a big military loss, such as an aircraft carrier or a traumatic attack on a large fixed installation in the Persian Gulf, would lead many Americans to question our involvement there. Justifying our military commitment to the Gulf requires buying into a complex argument about economic interdependency and the nature of global markets. This justification is valid. I would argue it is valid and it does serve our interests. But it is also abstract and theoretical. (coughs) The impact of significant loss of American lives or hardware, on the other hand, is immediate, emotional, easy to understand, difficult to refute in a town hall in, in small town. Our Gulf partners know this perhaps better than we do. They feel we are ignorant, fickle, and feckless. They also feel betrayed by the Western rapprochement with Iran. In the Gulf telling, the West's focus on nuclear issues gives Iran a free hand to carry on with the strategy of Shi'i encirclement and sedition directed at GCC states. This, this isn't my view, but this is a view that's been presented to me. One fact which many Western analysts miss is this. Even if our GCC of partners were to assume that the current nuclear talks with Iran are 100% effective in leading to Iranian nuclear disarmament, the GCC member states would still be unhappy with the process because of the perceived license given to Iranian activities elsewhere. Even if the nuclear agreement is 100% effective, that would still not be good enough because of what they see as an actual <laughs> campaign of encirclement. But all is not gloom. All is not gloom. Secretary Hagel in Bahrain this past December pointed out that the U.S. presence in the Gulf remains robust and is increasingly made up of more, ro- more appropriate and effective military capabilities, such as minesweepers, coastal patrol vessels, and forces brought in for, multi, for rotational multilateral exercises. So instead of having a fixed, large presence, a lumbering presence, what we have are mobile, nimble, smaller um, forces brought in for two months at a time where you can keep them in barracks, And uh, and avoid friction. This force mix better serves both GCC and American defense defense interests than having big lumbering ships working with an easy missile range of the Iranian coast. The The even greater positive trend, however, is one that Ambassador Smith touched on in the area of missile defense. For the first time, there is a positive movement towards a strategic goal that is almost as old as the GCC itself, namely an integrated GCC missile defense system. This is something America has been urging the Gulf states to do for years, but we only saw forward movement since the Iranian rapprochement for reasons that Ambassador Smith has described. The irony here is that the world leaders in missile defense technology are Americans, and so this program will likely lead to significantly enhanced American Gulf defense ties for some time to come. In summation, effective defense of the Gulf does not require a static force to sit on it it requires a realistic assessment of present future threats and an honest assessment of the best means the U.S. and its partners possess for deterring and countering these threats. For years, our, our analysis has been driven by hardware rather than brain power, some of which, thanks to the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, we have on display in this seminar, and some of which, for example, uh, Professor Sullivan was instrumental in establishing the stand-up of the UAE National Defense College. Paradoxically, the friction between the U- U.S. and the GCC over Iran may actually lead to an increase, not a decrease, in real defensive capabilities for what is arguably the world's most strategically vital region. Thank you for your patience. I welcome your difficult questions.
0: Thank you, uh, Colonel DeRosch, and uh, commend each of the speakers thus far from uh, confining their remarks to uh, 10 minutes or less which will leave ample time for discussions questions and debate we next have uh, professor Paul Sullivan uh, who wears many hats uh, though they're all off at the moment Uh, he teaches at uh, Georgetown uh, University in the national security uh, program uh, focusing on economic issues in particular and uh, he's a regular correspondent for uh, uh, newspapers in Turkey and uh, in Mongolia. Uh, and Mongolia uh, and we've been friends for some time now and he's been a regular speaker and commentator and contributor to, to these kinds of seminars for some time. Paul Sullivan
3: Thank you Well thanks again John Duke for the opportunity always eloquent always learn something from you Uh, I have to give uh, the usual caveats because like uh, the good colonel, I am also at NDU at least for the meanwhile. And uh, whatever I have to say is, is my opinion alone, does not represent that of the National Defense University, Georgetown University or any other group that I may be associated with. Well, USGCC, military cooperation, in motion. I'm really interested in this asymmetric concept you brought up about the Aircraft carriers and missiles—it's really quite good. I have to think a lot more about that. Now, what could I add to what uh, John Duke and the ambassador have vast uh, knowledge of this uh, issue? Uh, I could list the weapons we have sold to the GCC states. I was looking at these over the last few years or a few days, and I was just stunned at what I was saying. Uh, we, I could list the IBED agreements, including with uh, NDU and other uh, places, uh, Leavenworth, the uh, Naval Postgraduate School, the academies and so forth, and in a much smaller way I could list the 15 years I've been an advisor and mentor and teacher to students from the GCC, many of whom have gone up in ranks in the last few years. Uh, also thank you for mentioning uh, how I was part of the UAE Defense College startup a very interesting example of our relations. And the idea of cultural insensitivity, I think, is a vastly important issue that uh, David brought up. We have a lot of folks landing there who think they're still in Nebraska. They are not still in Nebraska. There have been lots of quiet meetings and discussions here and there between our two countries. Many of the people in this room know about those quiet meetings how things have been developed. I could also mention that 27% of the IMET military exports, training, and so forth from the entire Pentagon budget goes to the GCC. This is an important area, even though it seems a lot quieter than Asia. And Getting back to the concept of a pivot, when you take a look at Asian martial arts, you pivot just before you hit someone. And clearly, the Chinese are probably looking at our pivot as someone pivoting, thinking about hitting them. Uh, I don't think they're thinking basketball. They're probably thinking something else. I could also mention that the U.S. dominates exports of weapons to the GCC region. Only the French and the British are really in the game. Every country but Maman, we're way ahead on this thing. Whether that's a good or bad thing, that's another question we could talk about for many more meetings. The Chinese are not part of this. However, we cannot rule out that the Chinese will show greater interest in this region as time moves forward. They are becoming an increasingly important exporter of weapons in the world. I could also talk about the drivers today and in the past of why we're there. There are many historical and political reasons for being in Bahrain with the Fifth Fleet and having the Coac and Udair Air Force Base, in Qatar. There are also things making wedges between our two regions of the world and those six countries plus us. And I would agree with John Duke, we have to do more to develop something like a NATO with regard to the GCC, however difficult that might be. But I have a feeling that Washington is not up to the task. Because, frankly, Washington has been not up to the task of developing relations in the entire region for some time to come. What are some of the wages? Well, the U.S. is seemingly invertebrate reactions to the nightmare in Syria. Invertebrate. The U.S. is seemingly inept handling of the various changes in Egypt as the willing is also the odd mixed messages out of Washington regarding Bahrain. I know a member of the Bahraini royal family, he is as confused as I am on this. And also the seeming mismanagement of the Shia Sunni tensions by Washington. Also we could take a look at the alleged mismanagement of our relations with the GCC that have been gone ongoing for some time. Even with this mismanagement, even with these increased tensions, the arms trade and the quiet meetings continue. The IMET program continues. I see students from the GCC in my office weekly, sometimes daily. The training programs have not decreased, they have increased cooperation and protection of the Straits of Ramuz seems tighter than prior, even with these increased tensions. Even if the budgetary situation has decreased the numbers of aircraft carriers and other equipment and personnel from the United States in the Gulf area, we're still there. We have left Iraq. We have left Saudi Arabia, except for a few people. We're leaving Afghanistan. But this is part of the cycle of conflict normal historical movement, the cycles of expenses of conflict, and the cycles of regional political relations. These have been gone going for centuries. Conflicts come and go. We will stay. There are many reasons for US GCC relations to remain strong. We are not leaving the region. That may seem strange, given all the questions I get from people in the region and elsewhere. Why are the Americans losing interest in us? Why are, why are we leaving? You're going to leave us? I had a, a discussion with a, a member of a royal family, let's leave it very vague, in a coffee shop in Georgetown a few weeks ago, and I said, you know, that base in your country, we may just move out of there and the Chinese will take over. He was apoplectic. We don't know English. We don't know Chinese, we know English. We, we can deal with it, we can't deal with the Chinese. Please do not do this. I think we have to send signals like that up because the Chinese are very much interested in this, very much interested in developing a blue water navy. They have their slocks, they have their string of pearls, and 80% of their oil and gas comes from the Gulf. We are not leaving the region to the vagaries of an extremist, Iran. In Iran, even though we have an alleged agreement on certain marginal nuclear issues, is still very much involved in the slaughter of Syrians. Is still very much involved in the disruption of Bahrain. Is still very much involved with Hezbollah in Lebanon. And is still very much involved in the quite threatening building volcano in Iraq. Iran is still messing about in Central Asia. It is still messing about in Afghanistan. It is still a threat to the Gulf in general. It could easily become a threat to the shipping lanes. David pointed out one example of that. Uh, When you go home, uh, take a look at the map, uh, the charts, how deep this channel is, how thin it is, and where it goes by. Uh, This is a very dicey place to have 40% of the uh, ship transport oil and even possibly a larger percentage of natural gas coming out. As Asian demand for LNG increases. But they may just end up strangling themselves if they try to cut off the Straits of Hormuz, <coughs> because most of Iranian exports go through the Straits as well, as do their exports from their allies to Iraq, out of ABAT, KBAT, and so forth. The UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait are allies of the United States in many ways. Qatar gets a bit more complicated given its support of the Muslim Brotherhood and some other organizations of mischief. Yet we have a strong military cooperative network with Qatar. And we have a very good relations with the mill-to-mill level with the Qatari military leadership. And the mill-to-mill level with the GCC are very good even with Oman, which is not a major market for our arms. Yet we are building relations with Oman as it navigates its very complex relations with other GCC states and Iran. Nothing about the GCC is simple. Very little about the U.S. military relations with the GCC is simple, except for the fact that they remain strong and are actually strengthening as public political tensions between the GCC and the U.S. are painted across the media. Yes, we have our differences. Some of the differences have brought some to say things that may be a bit too strong, given what's actually happening out there. However, the GCC knows there is no peer competitor for military supplies, training, and other activities. It is not the French, it is not the British, it is not the Germans, and it's certainly not the Indians, and the Chinese. But with regard to the Chinese, that may be changing. The increase in Chinese influence in the region is not measured by IMET programs or arms exports. It's measured by business. It is not measured by the numbers of aircraft carriers, of which they only have one, or rust bucket out of Ukraine, or ships and troops on the ground, or how much it exports to the... It's about how much it exports to the region and how it is investing in the region. Chinese foreign policy and even Chinese foreign military policy is far more subtle in many ways than U.S. policy is. It has also proven to be effective in Africa, Latin America, and many parts of Asia. It also does not bring the democracy and human rights baggage that the U.S. policies bring along with it. There is less preaching and a lot more money. They're not the ones who are in debt. There is an interesting uh, meeting between an American official and a Chinese official, and the Chinese official asked the American official, what did you spend $3 trillion on in the last two decades? And of course, we all know where that money went. The Chinese have a war chest of $3 trillion in foreign currency waiting to be used. We don't. China will likely become slowly but very surely an increasing source of influence and counter-influence to the United States in the region in the future. India is also becoming more prominent in the region due to its energy needs, but also because of the large numbers of its people who live and work in the GCC. These two behemoths of Asia, about a quarter of the world population, will grow in power and grow in influence in the region India more slowly than with China does now, but after a few years, India will catch up. India will get its act together. It's a democracy. It's a noisy. China's a dictatorship. It's easier to get things done. China has Gwadar and Pakistan. It's not there to build a port in the middle of nowhere where nothing else is connected. This is connected with pipelines, roads, transport, energy networks, and trade. It is also playing Pakistan off India and Afghanistan along its borders. However, the real resource game for China in the region is the main oil and gas of the Gulf. India also has its resource <coughs> reasons. China first, but then India may get much more involved. The world is changing. We cannot think of this as a unilateral path that we have to resolve. There are other players in the game here. Little can be done in the Indian Ocean without some buy-in from India and also from China. This will become more important over time. Some of the future drivers of change in our military cooperation with the GCC in the longer run will include also water security and food security in the region as well as the changing global energy security that may be related to the water security in the region. If Saudi Arabia continues to increase its population and other drivers for water needs, including agriculture and industry, also energy, then by 2050, if it doesn't change the way it's making fresh water, it will be using 8.5 million barrels a day of its oil to make fresh water, and there won't be much to export. If Kuwait continues to rely on oil-fired desalinization plants, by 2050 it will not be exporting oil at all. More and more of the GCC will rely on desalinization for its water use, unless big changes happen toward focusing on renewables, water demand management, reuse of wastewater, and more. The really explosive issues in the region, yes, Iran is part of that, yes, terrorism is part of that, but also water and food and energy security. Iran is also looking down the barrel of a gun on water security, but that's a different story and for a different topic. Iraq is under great water stress. Yemen is a water disaster already happening. Food security in the region can be handled as long as they are exporting oil. <clears throat> there is a big oil for food trade off going here, mostly indirectly through cash transfers. But if they're not exporting the oil, their ability to have food security also is put in jeopardy. Much of those oil revenues go toward buying food. Most of the food that goes into countries like Qatar, UAE, and even Saudi Arabia with its significant agricultural base are from the outside. And it's very expensive. And the population is growing. If these imports of virtual water and food are pinched and stressed in the future, political stresses can arise. And the leadership of these countries have to react accordingly. There are looming issues in the region related to climate change as well. A lot of people in this city dismiss that. actually have a senator who thinks it doesn't exist. The people in the region are quite nervous about this. What is this going to do to their water resources, to their needs for electricity, to so many other things? It's already bloody hot in Saudi Arabia. Think about what will happen in the future if climate change kicks in. Yemen already sees this. Uh, Going to the north, the intellectual capital of Cairo, now moving to the UAE, they are nervous about the climate change that could happen to the Gulf. And if climate change is a threat multiplier and a risk multiplier, as uh, General Zinni has said on many occasions, then this is also a recruitment multiplier for certain bad actors in the region. I really don't know how this is going to play out, but it's something to consider. Also, we have to consider the concept of virtual energy. I know many of you haven't heard that concept before. But even though we may not be importing a lot of oil and natural gas from the GCC, our major trading partners are the EU, China, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, import a lot of oil and gas from the GCC. We trade with them. Our biggest place for our foreign direct investment is in Europe. We have lots of foreign direct investment in East Asia. These economies are determined in many ways by the security of that oil flow coming in from the Gulf to keep their economic entrance going. If for whatever reason there is a problem in the Straits of Hormuz or the Gulf and the U.S. isn't importing a single drop of oil or a single molecule of natural gas, it will still affect us. Because it will affect affect our trading partners. It will affect our investments. It will most certainly affect our stock markets and other investments internally. So, does it make sense for us to leave? Does it make sense for us to back down? It would be a folly to do this. It would be a folly not to help the GCC protect the vital infrastructure of energy, of transport choke points, financial interconnections, and even communications interconnections that go through that region. If you're interested in how the communications connections go through the region, take a look at the map of the fiber optic cables going near the GCC which connect Europe to Asia. We're all interconnected. That's almost a cliche right now. But that will also tie us to the GCC and the Gulf. Even if we might become more energy secure, we will never be energy independent. And frankly, we will never be independent of the potential shocks, financial and otherwise, coming out of the Gulf. Pretty much forever. Thank you.
0: We've had three superb presentations. Um, In order to get the uh, mental adrenaline uh, flowing, um, I'll make a few comments uh, not addressed by the speakers um, as further food for for thought. talked about the asymmetry aspect and um, Ambassador Smith made passing reference to it as well uh, which is at one and the same time uh, alarming uh, and remarkable in terms of the ingenuity and creativity of people who have been sanctioned uh, deliberately isolated boxed in uh, so to speak how they've been able to if not cope then fight back The improvised explosive devices being cases important in both Afghanistan and Iraq, which uh, uh, drove us uh, crazy until we uh, tried to find a way to um, uh, protect against that, to at least counter that. Um, And yet the uh, the improvised explosive devices cost very little and also the cost of what uh, happened on September the 11th, uh, 2001 was in no more than in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, That's if you exaggerate, Uh, but the losses were in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, But there's another asymmetry at work here. And this is in uh, the asymmetry of knowledge, the asymmetry of understanding, uh, the asymmetry of awareness, the asymmetry of empathy. Ponder the following, for example. In Saudi Arabia alone, for every day since 1975, there have been in Saudi Arabia's cabinet more American-trained PhDs than there have been American-trained PhDs or PhDs trained anywhere in the United States Cabinet, Senate, Supreme Court, and House of Representatives combined. Except for maybe 60 members of the Nation of Islam, uh, variously affiliated in the past with Malcolm X or Elijah uh, Mohammed or Louis Farrakhan. I've not, never met an American who studied for four years in Saudi Arabia and obtained her or his degree. And people may say, well, we couldn't be admitted. That's not true. Uh, I've met with the president of every one of Saudi Arabia's universities before the mushrooming that Ambassador Smith made allusion to. Of Uh, New and Independent Colleges in the last half decade and every single one of them um, was open to American uh, students coming in and studying, Uh, but the interest wasn't there. And so when you look at our ignorance, and ignorance being a close cousin of arrogance, uh, this is the root of a lot of it. When you have uh, more than, and this is conservatively speaking, more than 200,000 Saudi Arabians, who can think and dream in English, who spent innumerable Thanksgiving Day holidays sitting around the table with Mr. and Mrs. Brown, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and who uh, had cheerleaders for the Denver Broncos and the Los Angeles Raiders and the like. Uh, we, we have nothing remotely comparable to that. Uh, we're half a planted away, and yet uh, we are the, perhaps the most assertive and saying we know what's best for the region. And you saw this in neon lights, (coughs) underlined, capital letters, uh, italics. In the case of what we did to Iraq there, uh, we lost a country. Uh, We devastated a people who were the heirs of uh, civilization and the the alphabet and the uh, first legal codes and one of the most extraordinary museums of artifacts for humankind uh, that we left unguarded when we invaded Iraq, but we made certain to guard the ministry of interior, I mean, of uh, uh, petroleum and minerals. Uh, Point two, uh, on the Sunni Shia aspect, there is a stereotypical image that uh, Saudi Arabians leaders revile, despise uh, Sunnis across the board. Um, not so. I ponder the following, uh, that the best of years of peace and tranquility of law and order and security uh, in Northern Arabia and the Persian Gulf uh, were when Saudi Arabia cooperated with the head of state the largest Shia government and population in the planet, namely the Shah of Iran, before the the Shah hit the fan, so to speak, there. Uh, Saudi Arabia's relations with the government of Yemen from the beginning until now have been with and supportive of a government led by Shia. And since the 1970s to the present, Saudi Arabia's economic assistance to Yemen is greater than all of the economic assistance of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, Western East Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Japan, uh, Great Britain. In other words, the entire world, Saudi Arabia's largesse has gone to a Shia government and heavily Shia-populated country. Uh, Thirdly, um, until uh, the rupture uh, in the last two years, Saudi Arabia's relationship with Syria's government could hardly have been clearer and closer and one of uh, trust and confidence. And even King Abdullah, one of his wives, was from Syria. So the uh, Sunni- Shia aspect uh, has another face, and then what we read. And in the case of Lebanon, when uh, Lebanon's civil war came to a geopolitical end in 1988 uh, and '89, Saudi Arabia, with Kuwait and Algeria cleverly invited all the remaining uh, last elected members of Lebanon's parliament. To come to Saudi Arabia, to Taif to uh, be specific, uh, to try to find a solution to the end of the civil war. And once they arrived, Saudi Arabia said, we um, welcome and use the mini bar to your heart's content, but you're not leaving until we fix this thing. And it was Saudi Arabia that led the movement to increase the power and the representation of the Shia in Lebanon's government. These are all facts, facts are stubborn things, okay? Yes. Uh, We'll make some other points, but um, invite members of the uh, panel to uh, make points that have yet to be made or take issue with the points that have been made Yes. All right. Uh, Any questions? Are there different policies among GCC members vis-à-vis Iran? Great question. Especially in the event Iran does become a nuclear power. Will Iran's acquisition of a nuclear weapon, or just short of that, result in potentially the possible fragmentation of the GCC? Will this lead to some pulling away from the United States and towards Iran or making accommodations because of the absence of uh, viable alternative uh, choices? Uh, Why is the United States refusing to have an ambassador to the GCC? Where is the resistance uh, to the idea Uh, regarding United States forces in the Gulf area? Is that concern about the carrier vulnerability appreciated by the U.S. leadership? Regarding the Iran threat to shipping in the Gulf and Hormuz, shouldn't the U.S. be working with Oman to develop an oil export on its east coast? these are all timely uh, questions, and we'll come back and ask speakers to respond. With the break-even oil prices to some GCC countries, uh, such as Saudi Arabia, approaching or even exceeding the real oil uh, price, Bahrain and Oman being things of reference, how would potential longer-term regime instability affect U.S. GCC defense cooperation? And lastly, um, what kind of position is the U.S. being placed in as tensions between the GCC countries mount due to developments in Egypt, Iran, and Syria? How should the U.S. position itself in light of this friction? Who would like to take any of these uh, questions.
1: I I personally think the issue of the Straits of Hormuz are one of the least important of the challenges we have in the region. Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia has the capacity to flip a switch and and pump about 3.5 million barrels uh, in a gas pipeline uh, uh, very quickly. Uh, uh, So uh, the the people portray the Straits of Foreign News as being the military issue. I, I don't think it is. Uh, uh, we have an immense capability within our uh, United States Navy uh, uh, to eliminate threats there and to do uh, uh, countermining. We. Uh, Every year run an exercise, and if I remember correctly, there are about 34 countries <coughs> involved in that uh, uh, counter-mining exercise that went on last fall. So it's something that uh, not only are we proficient at, we trained for. Uh, now, in looking at the geography of the region, clearly Oman's proximity to Iran across the Straits and the Emirates, too, uh, technically, uh, uh, suggests that they have economic relations with Iran that some of the other GCC states don't have, and therefore they work very hard not to uh, alienate. They, they walk a tightrope on their foreign policy. So Amman's foreign policy with respect to Iran is a lot different than anybody else in the GCC. Having said that, they're very close allies and are very supportive of many of the things that we're doing. And I would argue that uh, uh, Sultan Qaboos has been very important to us as we have engaged Foreign Minister Rouhani in the the latest series of talks. So that sophisticated foreign policy that they have, I think has been very helpful to us. Uh, There there are some foreign policy differences among the GCC states. but a lot of that has to do with economic interest more than anything else. And arguably, the GCC states would like to have a rapprochement with Iran. Um, in the Rashidun era, Saudi Arabia had a reasonable, if not very positive, relationship with Iran, but things worked. Uh, uh, the emirates have suffered uh, immensely in their banking industry because of the sanctions. And they've done so as good soldiers uh, supporting the, the uh, uh, sanction strategy. But were there a, a rapprochement then you would see uh, an immense amount of trade going back and forth from Dubai, Abu Dhabi and into Iran. And then the same could be said for the rest of the region. The challenge is not that we're talking to Iran. The challenge is the perception in the region that we're going to do a grand bargain with Iran, that we will settle the nuclear file, uh, and people in the region think that it will be to the advantage of the Iranians because uh, uh, they they believe what was it? Someone said Iran's never won a war but never lost a uh, negotiation. Uh, uh, so uh, so we would settle the uh, nuclear file, which is the issue most important to us, and in doing so turn our back on the region, leave a void, just like uh, Iraq in 2003, with Iran to move in and fill that void. That's the worry. Uh, and uh, we've, uh, uh, there's been enough shortcomings in our foreign policy over the last two decades to justify that concern. Uh, the I don't worry too much about the tensions among the GCC states. Uh, again, there's a recognition that people see things differently. Uh, I see that more healthy than uh, 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 otherwise.
3: Um, Paul, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll take on a couple of them. One is the pipeline options going across uh, Oman, uh, which. I'm kind of envisioning the, the map of Oman connected to UAE. Uh, there is a new pipeline system uh, cutting across UAE to the other side of uh, the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, but the, the cost for the investment in such pipelines, particularly going across the uh, mountains and so forth, could be in the multiple billions. And there has to be a good reason for that. The risk has to be higher enough. If the gulf becomes, or rather the Straits of Hormuz become uh, extremely risky, then my, most likely, the possibility of having those investments will increase considerably. But still, this is a lot of money. We're talking about multiple billions. If you can get the ships through without paying the billions, then that's a better way of doing things. But that kind of uh, gets away from some of the more important uh, strategic uh, energy uh, points in the region, one of them being upcake in Saudi Arabia. Uh, 67 million barrels of uh, oil coming out from the major fields is sweetened and processed in this facility up. Uh, Al Qaeda got inside of the first fence a few years ago. Al Qaeda's MO is try, try, try again. If they ever get to upcake or another group gets to upcake, the price of oil could easily go to 250, 350 possibly for some time, depends on how much damage they cause to the facility. So it's not necessarily the transport through the Gulf it's the facilities, which are quite vulnerable. Even though you can surround these things with military people and, and air defense systems, the Thads that the UAE has and other things, asymmetry is part of the game here. And all it takes is a few mortar rounds in the right place. And the energy system of the entire world is at risk. So the pipeline options are part of it, but also another aspect of this is that the LNG trade is increasing out of the Gulf. In LNG, you really can't put through these pipelines over the mountains. They're going to be put into these big uh, container carriers. You have to cool it down to minus 267 degrees, turn it into a liquid, send it through. Uh, you can send the natural gas across pipelines that have LNG facilities on the other side, but again those investments you're talking for the amount of LNG that would be taken out mostly from Qatar, going across UAE and so forth, probably the 18 to 20, 20 billion mark. That's a lot of money for a situation may not be looked at as being increasingly risky just yet because of the alleged rapprochement. I say it's alleged because the Iranians are up to a whole bunch of other things at the same time. I still have a question in my mind about what exactly the Iranians are up to. The other day, actually two days ago, they announced that they're willing to talk with the IAEA about their detonator imports. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute here. Detonator imports, I thought you folks were doing this for energy security. Notice a slight sarcasm. Uh, Iran flares off the equivalent of four nuclear power plants in natural gas. Nuclear power plants, about 1,300 megawatts. If this is energy security, then I'm missing something, and I've been in that game for close to 30 years. Iran has hard water facilities in Iraq. Hard water plants are usually production plants. And I'm not talking about electricity production plants. There are certain activities in the country that certainly send up flags to the IAEA and others, including at some university uh, nuclear laboratories. They're using strategic ambiguity, which they most likely learned from uh, one of their neighbors in the eastern Mediterranean. But this is a threat. They want to keep it a shadowy threat. At the same time, we're making agreements on things that are in the shadows as hundreds of thousands of people are getting killed in Syria or injured. I find this a complete and utter absurdity. And with regard to whether the GCC will turn to a rapprochement with Iran, if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, I would say it would be just the opposite. They're going to gather around the horses, and they're going to start looking to developing their own programs. There's now a nuclear city in Saudi Arabia. The UAE is developing nuclear plants not for weapons, but for the study of nuclear energy. The UAE is building uh, nuclear power plants just south of Abu Dhabi, with the help of the Koreans. Uh, The Pakistani-Saudi connection, uh, vague as it may seem, could become a lot stronger over time if the Iranians have a weapon. There will be an arms race, is my guess. And this is to no one's advantage. No one's advantage. And with regard to the relations between GCC countries and Iran, I can give kind of two endpoints, two bookends. One would be Qatar-Oman, where they have to have trade-offs because of those economic reasons. But also Qatar and Iran share a large natural gas field. South pars and the north field are the same field. It's not like there's this big gate around it where you have the the molecules for CH4 have to go into the Iranian territory and they have their little Iranian passports. No, this is the same stuff. So they have to get involved in those trade-offs. And also there are certain facilities in the Gulf energy facilities that are jointly owned by members of the GCC and the Iranians and jointly operated. Hardly known. It's not exactly something you'll get in the Washington Post. Uh, On that, you know, there's this trade-off, and that makes people change their viewpoints and become more sophisticated and subtle. But on the other side is Bahrain. If you were to speak with the Bahraini leadership for no more than 20 seconds about Iran, you will get a feeling for where they're coming from. (laughs) There's no patience there. There's no understanding that they want to work. Because of the problems that are being brought to Bahrain, from their perspective, from Iran, and frankly, I think they're right about it. So this is this is a, a situation which is not s- simple at all, uh, but it's also fascinating enough to give job security to certain people for a long time. No, <laughs> rush, I'll make a I think first
2: off. I, I have a saved round which on uh, Ambassador Smith's point, um, I forgot. But this year, for the first time, a Rhodes Scholar was selected from uh, NY. It's a Marshall Scholar. Uh, American Rhodes Marshall Scholar being selected from outside the United States, even you know, to a great university like Concordia. Sure. Yeah. So, so for the first time, a Rhodes Scholar selected from uh, NYU Abu Dhabi. As a matter of fact, I've never heard of a Rhodes Marshall Scholar being selected from NYU in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to address the issue of um, uh, Iranian nuclear power and the carrier one, since I made that point. Um, the GCC reaction. Classical international relations theory holds. Uh, I'm going to have a theoretical argument and a historical argument. IR theory holds that alliances are at their strongest when they face a strong external threat. And I think that if you look at the history of the GCC, which rose in response to a direct threat, as Dr. Anthony said, uh, you know that w- what you'll see is regardless of whether the threat is nuclear or conventional, or indeed if it is this sedition which you, you know, which uh, hardliners in, in various GCC countries. Uh, describe to us uh, what you'll see as a coming together in a sense of purpose. And, and indeed, missile defense is perhaps the best example of that. And historically, not just the GCC, if you look at NATO, um, once uh, the Cold War ended, uh, you know, adherence to NATO was a secular religion in Europe. Once the Cold War ended, you saw the rise of this European Union, which uh, at least in the views of, of many, in particularly in France, was to eventually develop parallel institutions, security military institutions. And that vision has not been abandoned. It was tried first in Bosnia, where it failed miserably, led to thousands of deaths. And uh, it's been tried and tried again, and it, is, it has never quite worked, but it's still out there. And basically, what you see is, if there's, in the absence of a great threat, NATO uh, tends to lose its, its relevance and cast <coughs> around for missions, hence the role in Afghanistan. Um, so I think you'll see the same among the GCC, but there will remain differences, and recall that even in the period of the tanker wars, there were distinct approach differences on how to approach um, Iran within the United Arab Emirates. Abu Dhabi and Dubai essentially had a uh, uh, 180 out on how to deal with that. Uh, the only thing I can say with absolute certainty, and I, I'd welcome any contradiction on this, is whatever the other five members of the GCC view, Oman will always be a little bit different. And... Uh, not because they want to be different, but as, as Dr. Anthony said, they're just a little bit more sophisticated at this than, than uh, they're playing a deeper game and, and we very, very rarely quite fully comprehend it. Uh, whether that's due to geography or sophistication, I'm not quite sure. Second point, uh, are, are the concerns about carrier vulnerability shared? My argument is no, uh, and I'm going to shift to a discussion of how bureaucracies work here. It, my understanding of history suggests to me that large organizations only shift their focus in response to one of two things. Number one is truly exceptional leadership, which you only get once every two generations or so, a figure like J. Edgar Hoover, who comes on the scene, transforms things in a way through superior force of capability, and then and, and use it. The second thing is a disaster. It takes a disaster. And even then, that disaster has to happen over <coughs> a prolonged period of time. So we in the United States have never, and arguably even now, do not have an analog institution to the ministries of the interior, which you see in almost every other developed world. The Department of Homeland Security is the analog to the ministry. That did not exist until after 9-11. It was a response to that disaster. Similarly, when you look militarily, what you find is organizations tend to develop about uh, their large capital-intensive structure. So air forces... Uh, in the period in the lead up to World War II were organized around bombers and the theory of aerial bombardment was, depending on how cynical you are, either developed to um, uh, support a large bomber force or a large, the capabilities of a large bomber force led to the theory of aerial bombardment. But the doctrine at the time was the large capital ship was invulnerable, the bomber will always get through. And what the Battle of Britain showed was there are ways to defeat that with smaller nimble and mobile things as well as technological advancements such as radar. Similarly, uh, the battleship, the large capital ship, was held to be you know, the king of the seas and that lasted up until the Prince of Wales was sunk off Singapore, I believe this month uh, is the anniversary of that. Um, but the battleship didn't immediately fade from the scene. It remained active in an asymmetrical role throughout the Vietnam War, fi- providing coastal fire suppression and, and indeed off Lebanon in 1982. So, uh, but now they're museum pieces. And so I kind of, it's kind of intellectually dishonest because when you cite broad historical trends as a speaker, you know, I could be put in my grave saying, well, it's, you know, it's still going to happen. <laughs> but uh, I would argue that these, these things eventually the price of making missiles is going to be so small. Mm -hmm. What the Navy would tell you is, no, we've got these, these are great, and we're building defensive systems, and the defensive systems will defeat the missiles. But the asymmetrical nature of the expense, it is so much more expensive to defeat a missile than it will be to fire a missile. And I've only spoken about missiles with relatively high trajectories. I didn't talk about sea skimmers or supersonic torpedoes. Mm -hmm. That will become so great that eventually this truth will be brought to us, whether it's through incredible leadership, which you can't bank on, or more likely a disaster. I hope it's the former, not the latter. But I'm speaking in broad historical trends, so it's kind of intellectually
0: dishonest because my argument cannot effectively be disproven. Um, (laughs) That's all I have. Okay, three takeaway points. Thank you, Colonel De Roche. Um, and most of these sessions on the GCC, people say, well, it won't be a successful organization until, or unless it has all of the re- uh, the countries in the region within this regional organization. Uh, uh, quite the contrary, it succeeded because it hasn't had all of the countries <laughs> in the region. In it. Iran will not become a member uh, except over their dead body. Now the will Jordan. Now the will Iraq. Now the will Yemen. Uh, all of which wanted to belong, and all of them were rejected at the beginning. Point two, if you want to understand how far, how fast, or how phlegmatic, or how dynamically uh, slow uh, the GCC is, your frame of reference is the United Arab Emirates. This is the single longest successful experiment in Arab regional cooperation and integration in modern history and it's because they go slow but sure, and it's like six mountain climbers uh, one of the six is going to be slower than the other five, you know, of course you have the option to cut the rope <laughs> and listen to that slow one fall yodeling all the way down to the valley floor below, but then you've got just five, and one of those five will be slower than the other four there, so they've decided to march in lockstep with each other, or not at all so this is a a window there. Third point, um, Iran and Oman, uh, their relationship has next to zero to do with economics. Um, The relationship has a geopolitical and a geographic one uh, there. There is no way that Oman is going to pick a fight with, provoke, antagonize Iran, uh, which has a population 40 times the size of Oman's. Point two on that is that Sultan Qaboos is psychologically, politically, procedurally indebted to the Iranians for saving his leadership, for saving Oman. Some 30,000 Iranian soldiers served in Oman to help defeat Arabia's single longest civilian insurrection in the southernmost province of Dofar where the Sultan from from 1965 to the end of 1974 no comparable arab contribution uh, was there to help make a difference there uh, and related to that is that uh, there are 225 permanent 225,000 permanent iranians in dubai or dubai in the UAE alone, okay? 475 to 500,000 on various given days when the shoppers come over and, and back. Just pondered the nightmare scenario along with uh, uh, Colonel DeRoche's endpoint of a single one of those Iranians or their agents driving a truckload full of explosives into the basement parking lot of one of the high rises Look what that would do to the price of oil. Look what that would do to global stock markets. Look what that would do to the atmosphere uh, for investment uh, or the moment uh, for political uh, closeness. And there are some today and yesterday and tomorrow, 200 boats from Iran every day come over to Oman and the UAE uh, to smuggle things back into Iran. Uh, 300 often, no fewer than 200. Uh, we take delegations up there in sailing dows uh, to watch this for several days. We'll do it next week with the U.S. Central Command officers there. So the relationship between Oman and, and uh, Iran have to do with completely different things than what often passes for established thought or informed, informed opinion as such. And as to threat assessment, people feel threatened as to where they sit and where they sit just where the stalk dropped them. In the northern gulf, their threats have been Iraq and they've looked towards Syria and Palestine and areas. Not in the southern gulf, no, they look towards Iran and to India, to Pakistan and to East uh, uh, Africa. Nothing strange about that in the United States. People in Florida do not worry about uh, people from uh, Quebec, or the French Canadians, <laughs> and people in Vermont and New Hampshire don't worry about uh, boatloads of Cubans coming onto their shore, or Haitians either. We've had a nice cerebral massage here. Uh, your questions fantastic, all of them on the mark, timely, relevant, and uh, the panelists have responded as best they could, and uh, uh, they've exceeded that which most specialists uh, would do on this complex, controversial, perennially important issue, topic, set of challenges.
3: Thank you for coming.